Pablo's Poppin' Podcast is brought to you by 15 surefire tips for relieving back pain, plus 192 others just in case, Volume 1, available in paperback at Amazon.com. What are your atonomic bombs? Over 30 million Americans are suffering with back pain at this very moment. The vast majority of these cases are either caused or exacerbated by common lifestyle factors. Many of the same factors may be causing you pain right now. Join board-certified physician Andrew Kirshner as he guides you through the parts of your life where these problems occur and gives you simple, safe and effective solutions for these common daily pitfalls. In this fun and informative book, you will learn how to identify the aspects of your life which may be causing you pain, how to create a back-friendly environment, how you can improve your pain by improving your sleep, ways to make a pain-free commute, and how you can perform daily activities without making your pain worse, and much more. Check out the five-star reviews. This is the book that you need if you suffer from back pain. That's 15 surefire tips for relieving back pain, plus 192 others just in case, available at Amazon.com. Just when you thought that there were already too many podcasts in the world, here comes another one. Welcome to another episode of Pablo's Popping Podcast. I'm already sounding uh, slightly muffled. Um, <laughs> it's springs in the air. I'm, I'm very happy about that, but it also means hay fever. Hay fever out of my arse. Um, so all the windows are closed. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, a, I'm just a shut in today. I'm just allergic to the sun. But um, yeah, what happens is I usually, as soon as I wake up. Because I usually keep the window open, which is a bit of a risk when spring happens. You know, I, I saw my first bee yesterday. Um, so, you know, when you leave the window open, you're just, you know, running the risk of having bees and, you know, everything summer related just flying into your house and, uh, you know, scaring the crap out of you. I like bees, but they are useless. You know, they, like in terms of, you know, direction, once they're in the house, I try to shepherd them out. Whereas wasps, they're bastards, but once they're in, they're like laser-guided missiles. They just go straight back out the way they came in. Um, 
so yeah, I'm, uh, when I sneeze, it's it's a sneezing fit, and you know it, I'm not even completing the first se- sneeze before ten of a sneezes happen, and my eyes just pop out of my head. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like I've been in a match with Stan Hansen in Japan. Um, yeah, look at that with a wrestling reference. That doesn't happen too often. Um, you, you can tell that my guest is a wrestler today. Um, it's it's really awesome that you know the show is being able to expand in this way because I I've, I've always said that I wanted to keep the show, um, you know I have to be interested in what the guest is doing you know it has to yeah I, I figured it, it means that there's going to be an easier flowing conversation you know I don't have to do as much research because I I know about the stuff or I want to know about what they are doing so. Today's guest is uh, Rick Titan, and if you're unfamiliar with the name, he uh, was also Big Titan in Japan and elsewhere, and probably best known as uh, the fake Razor Ramon, and if anyone knows me, I am a huge fan of the New Generation era. Um, It's just the time when I grew up, you know, and I I think when you grow up, um, things that you like sort of stick with you and it's very sort of you know it almost molds you into the person that you're going to become you know it, it's like adolescence you know your first crush you never forget it you never quite get over it um you know your first interest you know maybe you you um you know you grow out of it and then you come back to it but when i was when i was when i was a wee lad um you know, I got into wrestling 1993, and or WWF in particular. Um, you know, they just sold out Wembley Stadium. You know, it was easy to be caught up. You know, the the merchandise was everywhere: Easter eggs, socks, video games. Um, you know, just as hot as it was during the Attitude Era, if you ask me. Um, and as I grew up during those years. You know, the WWF got more mature, so I didn't have to drop out of liking it. Um, you know, it, it grew up with me, and I really didn't drop out as a hardcore fan until sort of years later. But um, I very much regressed because of eBay uh, into sort of, you know, the old school stuff. It, it's like music is kind of a passion, and it inspires, and it, you know, is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. But wrestling is almost like, um, you know, that almost takes control of, you know, you know how there's three parts of the brain, there's a reptile brain, there's the mammal brain, and then the the other part, I can't remember, I, I'm not a scientist, uh, or biologist, or whatever, I don't care, um, <laughs> but the wrestling is almost like, you know, that that's for the reptile brain, where it's almost a subconscious thing now, you know, it, that keeps me sane. Uh, you know, I'll watch Royal Rumble 93 for the millionth time and still get into it. And, you know, um, yeah, and I mean, if, again, if you know me, I just have this ridiculous wrestling collection. Um, <laughs> and uh, see, I can I shouldn't really complain about ever being broke because when I do have money, um, I spend it on, you know, absolute useless junk. But it really, you know, it uh, it keeps me entertained. And like I say, it keeps me sane. Um so yeah, um, straight into business, I want to thank um, the New Generation podcast. If you're a wrestling fan listen to this, you know, you're, you're probably familiar with the New, New Generation podcast. They uh, review pay-per-views and uh, more from that era, uh, and they've really, you know, they've found a niche in the market, you know, there's the Attitude Era podcast, which is, it seems like the obvious thing to do, because, um, 
it was the more popular time. There was the there's OSW review, which reviewed the Hulkamania era, but this new generation era, um, it's kind of become uh, like sort of ironically cool now, as sort of, like as a lot of things do. Um, but um, they're doing a really good job, and they um, have been really helpful with uh, me. You know, they've had no reason to help me because uh, they have. You know they have a, a larger audience, but that is part of what I'm trying to do with the podcast: is do some cross promotion and get the podcast out there a bit more. Um, so yeah, I want to thank them for being open to uh, some cross promotion. One of the lads from OSW, uh, sorry, New Generation Podcast, is uh, going to be on the show coming up. So I, again, I didn't really want to make this a wrestling podcast as such. Um, because I don't like, I'm, you know, I don't spend my time sort of critiquing everything, um, to the point, like I say, it's, it's the reptile brain, I don't think about it when I'm watching it, I just enjoy it, it's almost like mindless entertainment, you know, Jim Ross has called it that quite recently as well, um, so, yeah, we're, uh, one of the lads from uh, New Generation Podcast will be on the show and we'll, we'll just nerd out. And <laughs> I'm hoping that everyone kind of enjoys that. Um, speaking of, uh, I, I guess, wrestling journalism, um, I don't know if anything's going to come of this, but I've submitted my first um, sample piece to uh, What Culture WWE. And if you're familiar with What Culture, they you know, they deal in viral material, basically, uh, you know, articles, videos, and memes, and if there's one thing that I can write about at length, it's old school wrestling, you know, it, it very much comes from a reminiscing point of view, but, <coughs> I'm gonna cough, <coughs> um, but hopefully, you know, I, I never tried, you know, I don't see myself as retro, or, I don't even see it as reminiscing. I never stopped liking that stuff, so maybe I just didn't really, really grow up or, uh, you know, get with the times or whatever. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes because if, if they do like it, then it's a it's a paid job and that's part of my self-employment. Um, and for all of those listening for the first time, because I, I know that, um, you know, all of a lot of the listeners who may have listened to the music shows probably did aren't going to listen to this one, but hopefully you know, the audience expands and there's a lot of wrestling fans who are going to listen to this. Um, the underlying theme of this entire podcast is that I am self-employed and I'm trying to use this, you know, this podcast is part of my self-employment. I have sponsors, as you heard at the beginning of the show. Um, I'm also, uh, uh, well, I'm basically self-employed musician, which covers a lot of uh, ground. You know, I make commissions, um, I release my own material, um, yeah, so yeah, uh, but I also have music at toxicmelons.bandcamp.com. That's toxicmelons.bandcamp.com. If you would like to check that out, I'm influenced by, you know, the Beatles, Beach Boys, Queen, Jellyfish, uh, sort of that very melodic, uh, very layered, textured sort of, uh, sort of classic pop, but you know, it's with melody is the main thing, you know, sing along catchy melodies, um, but, you know, I think there's, uh, it's sort of a bit, well, it's more, I guess, in my <laughs> in my own ego, uh, more advanced than sort of just normal pop. It's, I mean, it's generally called power pop. Um, and I'll be p- uh, playing with my band, Toxic Melons, at the IPO at the Cavern Club in Liverpool uh, in May, 20th and 21st. So if you can come down, 
if you live near the area, that would be great. I would love to see you. But yes, toxicmoms.bandcamp.com. Check it out. If you like what you hear, you know, if you want to make a purchase, that would be great. If you want to recommend it to people, again, that would be great. That's what helps keep the show running. It's I'm not making a, a ton of money here at all. You know, um, you know, I'm going to a tribunal for my working tax credits um, because you know the, the, the dubious of musicians, even though they agree that I'm working enough hours per week, but they don't feel I'm earning enough money. But that is the point of working tax credits. I'm not going to get massively into that, but that just shows you the level that I'm at with this self-employment. That it's, you know, everything's a work in progress. I've got projects coming up. Um, you know, I've worked with various big names uh, in the music industry, and hopefully I'm going to be connected to uh, a lot of um, TV personalities with some of the projects that I'm going to be doing. So we'll, we'll just see how all of that goes. But yes, um, today's guest... Rick Titan. Um, he is currently a transformational speaker. Um, and you may have heard of motivational speaking, but this is transformational speaking. And I asked him about that, and you'll understand why he calls himself that, not a motivational speaker. Uh, why it's more important to be, you know, to you know, use that word transformational. Um, he's doing a good thing. You know, he... You know, looks back at his uh, career, where you know he was addicted to pain pills, and you know, he, and but he also uses his experience in the spotlight to connect with people, and he is doing an amazing job, and he's so genuine, um, which which is kind of ironic since he played the fake version of a, an established character, but yeah, he's very genuine. He's one of the nicest people I've ever had on the podcast. Um, I think hopefully this will open some doors to. I, I do have more former WWF talent um, confirmed. I can't mention. I can't go into who they are yet. But uh, I hopefully you know because trying to get wrestlers for your podcast, they've had a million requests for podcasts, and I totally understand why they may not do it, etc. So you know we'll just see where it all goes from there. Um, <clears throat> but before we go into my interview with Rick. Um, I'm going to play you a song by Toxic Melons. I know this is just me just forcing myself uh, musically onto you now. But I think the song kind of works because it's a, it's a song about being okay with where you are at in life. You know, I turned 30 this May and I'm, I'm okay with life. You know, I think <laughs> you know, there's obviously things, no one's ever entirely happy. Um, you know, there's always things that you want to uh, achieve or whatever and you know there's just very basic things you know like even just finding someone I suppose just to share your life with and you know it, I, the last album that I wrote Bus Therapy wrote all of the lyrics on the bus um, and it was it was kind of therapy and you know I kind of feel the same way about those songs even though they were a couple of years old as I did then um, and the chorus of the song goes uh, here's to all the undecided boys and girls who don't know why or where their life is heading or what led them here today just take comfort in the fact that not everything is white and black just enjoy the bumpy ride don't try to run don't try to hide and life will more or less turn out okay um which goes against you know some people's beliefs that uh, <laughs> that you, you you know you have to sort of strive to make life uh, worthwhile but I think if you just, I don't know, just 
protect yourself from the shower of shit that sometimes hits you in life. You know, life isn't bad, really. You know, we have ice cream. You know, life isn't that bad. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is more or less. Uh, and then we'll be going straight into my interview with the superb Rick Titan.
Okay, so anyone who knows anything about me and has been a listener of uh, Pablo's Poppin' podcast over the past three months knows that I'm a huge wrestling fan, and it is quite an honour to have with me uh, someone that I'm uh, very familiar with from his past. Uh, he wrestled as Big Titan, and he also wrestled as the second incarnation of Razor Ramon. We have with us today Rick Titan. How are you doing today? You're fantastic. It's great to be here. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, for taking part. Um, you know, you've uh, you've wrestled all across uh, you know Canada. You've wrestled in Japan. You've of course wrestled in the states, and you've wrestled in uh, Europe as well. Um, and currently, uh, through uh, RickTitan.com, you are sort of changing lives. Uh, you know, uh, with transformational speaking. I love that word. You know, um, you know, because I always use the word motivational speaking but is there a is there a difference between you know just motivational speaking and transformational speaking in your in your opinion yeah i, I think that motivation you know it can rile, rile people up for a while but typically they go out back into their lives and nothing's really changed and the motivation drops by the next day uh, i've heard some great speakers in my time i've heard deepak chopra speak bill clinton speak I met Deepak and uh, chatted with him a little bit. He's brilliant. Um, very funny when you get to meet him um, quietly in the back room. Very different. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a lot of people are that. A lot of speakers are that way. You know, we're, we're introverts, believe it or not. And uh, we need our quiet and our down and our alone time. And then we get in front of an audience and we light up. It was the same thing for me with wrestling. I love being in front of audiences still. Um and so we heard, I think it was Joe Namath, a football player, and he got up there and he rambled on for an hour and a half, and it was fun and everything. But I walked out of there with my friend uh, Dennis, and, and uh, we were at World Health Club at the time, and they took us down to the U.S. and, and San Francisco, actually, to watch these guys speak. And um, I said to Dennis, man, that was great, wasn't it? He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped. And I said, you know, do you remember anything he said? <laughs> so um because no, not really there's no transformation there yeah oh that's uh that's pretty amazing because that answers uh another question i was going to ask as well um was because obviously you uh you know you use your uh experiences of uh you know pain pill addiction but you also use your experience of being in the spotlight in front of an audience to um connect with uh connect with people uh was there a particular was there one particular single moment that uh, made you trans? I mean, obviously, you know, you had to retire, but uh, what was the one specific thing that made you want to help other people? You know, it's funny. Um, when I was finishing up, I think it was I had this feeling for about a year and a half, two years before I actually quit, and the feeling was is that I don't need to be doing this anymore, and I, I. Pushed my body to the limits. I mean, I was doing Hurricane Ron. I was at 285 pounds and yeah. doing um, tough days, head first dives over the top rope onto the cement on the dive. And sometimes the Japanese guys got scared and they moved. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrestled, you, know, you wrestled with a broken neck as well, didn't you? Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, airline fractured my C5, C6 vertebrae. I didn't know what it was. I got an MRI. They went and they, they couldn't see anything, but I knew I couldn't turn my neck and I had constant headaches. Yeah. I had a concussion for sure. And, uh, they gave me some kind of a super pain pill that day. And I, I was so whacked out of it. I went to go into a grocery store here 
And it's funny, they've got their, in this one grocery store called Safeway here, they've got their entrance on the left and then their, uh, their exit on the right. Well, you know, here in Canada and the U.S., we drive on the right-hand side of the road versus we're in England, you guys go on the left, so there's Japan, yeah. many other countries. But most of the doors then would open from the right side door and then exit through the left side door. So I'm with my ex-girlfriend at the time. And I, I'm stoned out of my tree and I walk face first into the glass in the exit. Oh, no. <laughs> I shook my Actually, I walked in there. And it looked like people milling about zzz, like bees in a hive. And I said to her, I got to go sit back in the truck. I can't be here. Can you grab me with this And uh, kind of funny, but, you know, that yeah. wasn't my... <laughs> we can laugh at it, though. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really, it wasn't my addiction time then. But yeah. uh, that was what the hospital gave me. But so they didn't see anything in my neck at all. And uh, I, I, they gave New Japan Pro Wrestling, I, in my opinion, the best promotion in the whole world. Uh, far superior to WWE as far as I'm concerned. The work rate, the quality of the guys, the stiffness of the matches, the reality of the shoot style, etc. Uh, the bumps, how fast they go, you know. I mean, they're not lazy in Japan that much. But um, I got three months off, and I don't know if they knew and they did it on purpose or they just had that in their calendar and it was a fluke. But that three months, I laid around on the couch. And really, I should have had the steel rods screwed into my skull and there's shoulder supports on in the halo. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that until two years later after I quit and I went to my doctor. I said, I got constant headache, constant headaches. Like there's something wrong. And he goes, let's get an x-ray in your neck. So he gets an x-ray in there. He goes, and, and this is when they actually showed you x-rays still. They don't do that anymore because they just got my hip x-ray and they just give you a write-up on it. And it's so scientific, you can't understand it. You got to get the top of this pain. But anyways, my hip's pretty worn out now. I might have to get a hip replacement at a fairly young age. Um, but back to the neck, he says, oh, you see right here, right here? I said, yeah. He goes, "That's uh, you broke your neck. <laughs> it was in the match. I remember because it was in the match with Hashimoto, and he pulled a, a DDT out. That's his finishing move, so I'm sure he wanted to make it look good. It was for TV and all over Japan, and it was big. There was 10,000 people there. The equipment that they had, the speakers, the, the lighting, uh, the TV cameras was just freaking amazing. Like I said, they, I, I think we outdid WWE with the quality. But you know, in Japan, the cameras and everything, they're, they're really into that. So, um, so Hashimoto held on too tight. And I thought, well, if I have to do the job, if I have to lose, I'm going to make it look like it killed me. Yeah. And, and if you are going to break your neck, you might as well do it in front of as, you know, as many people as possible, I suppose. <laughs> So <laughs> at least a lot of people will remember it then. But um, so um, with, uh, you know, you uh, sort of wrestling in Japan and with your sort of opinions on, you know, your love of, uh, you know, Japanese uh, sort of companies, uh, does that come from, um, because you are from Canada and you trained, I, I, I would assume sort of in a no-nonsense kind of style in Canada. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, uh, Japan has that kind of no-nonsense feel to it as well yeah well, i always thought you know if you're going to do it do a good job like if you're in uh, in the movies and you're doing your own stunts you either do them really excellently or don't do them at all and get somebody else to do it because yeah. people are paying to see you for entertainment and you know it's just the same as a, a lousy actor or something like that why why would you want to watch it right brush up your acting skills memorize your lines get the emotions down and uh same thing with wrestling you know we, we was acting a lot of it yeah and uh 
same thing with the physicality. I thought, well, if you can't take a clothesline over the top, you can't jump up in the air and you bump, and and you can't, you don't have any cardio. I trained guys years later, and I had them running laps around the ring in this martial arts studio, and the one guy started crying <laughs> three or four laps, and he was just obese. And I said to him, man, if you ever want to go to Japan or even the U.S. and you want to make it, you're going to have to get your cardio going, you know? And so all of it, when I bench press four plates a side, that's 400 pounds. I, I couldn't tell you what it is in stones, but no. <laughs> uh, four plates a side is a lot of, a lot of weight. And I squatted five plates a side. And I made sure I pushed my body to the limit in preparation for being in the ring. And those beautiful fans paying sometimes $100 a ticket, they're going to get their money's worth when they're doing it. So I'm going to give them a lot of value. Going back to something you said about, you know, the whole playing a character thing, uh, does that mean that you have sort of immediate, I suppose, negative uh, thoughts of when you played Razor Ramon? Um, it was a, you know, it's a time period when I grew up uh, that I sort of hold near and dear because uh, I consider it a kind of an experimental transitional time where they were kind of throwing ideas out there and kind of being controversial, but still within the realms of wrestling sort of thing, you know, mentioning, you know, the competition and all that sort of thing. Uh, I did want to get into it a bit more later, but what is your sort of, uh, looking back on it now, your um, thoughts of the fake Razor Ramon? Well, I, I went in there and did a tryout. Bret Hart got me in there, a friend of mine, and uh, I did a tryout as Rick Titan. I lost a guy named Frank Stiletto, and um, he... Uh, I had a big name in Japan at the time, and some of the bigger names in the U.S. don't care. They treat you like a jabroni. Yeah. <laughs> some of the guys have a lot of respect for you because they're like, if you can make a big name in Japan, you're a world heavyweight champion out there, man. You, you know, you paid your dues, you're good. And you can take a stiff shot, too, so there's respect for that, right? A lot of people can't take it over there. Um, but the Razor Ramon character was so much acting and so loosey-goosey and floppy that... Uh, I didn't really care for it, but I did a lot of imitations. I can imitate almost every wrestler there is, and I do a lot of imitations when I speak just to entertain the people while we're doing the seminar. Uh, like I said, they're going to be in front of people and they're going to be paying for it. You better give them a lot of value, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I was on the road with Chris Jericho in Japan in 93 or so, and I always go, hey, man, I'm talking <laughs> And he go, you stop it. I need to that. That's awesome. Sorry. 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 Oh, sorry I, uh, I, I, that's the thing, you know, I, I, I'm still sort of learning as a podcast host, so if I interrupt you, just tell me to shut up. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. Um, well, because of your sort of size and athleticism, uh, you know, you wrestled, all, uh, you know, around, uh, which parts of Canada did you wrestle around? It wasn't around the whole country. It was uh, around the sort of Alberta area, wasn't it? Yeah, Alberta, BC. Um, I never went to Saskatchewan, skipped over that, went to Winnipeg. We wrestled some AWA wrestlers out there. It was pretty cool. And uh, I wrestled Ken Patera, the powerlifting champion, and he was a big name in WWF at the time. Tough, tough guy. Yeah. He shot me in for a shoulder tackle, and I, I see him leaning forwards at me, like really low. And I'm like, uh oh. In a split instant, all these thoughts go through your head, right? <laughs> because. Off the ropes, coming right. <laughs> I'm running into him, and every experience I ever had with his shoulder tackle is the guy that's got the momentum off the ropes knocks the other guy down, and he takes a bump. Yeah, makes sense. Well, Ken just squatted down and hunkered down and leaned into me, and I'm running off the ropes really fast. 
and he just leans his shoulder into me as a kabam on the back of my head. <laughs> he puts it a man yeah, I'm cold, and I was like, holy crap, this guy's trying to prove he's a veteran, and I'm just some green guy. <laughs> it Was that what it was? Was he kind of, was he pissed off, and uh, or was he just, was that just kind of the old school mentality sort of thing? Yeah, it was old school. We can laugh and, and think it was all cute and fine and everything, but, you know, when it comes to, I'm, I'm really into personal development, and I coach people on that and speak about it, um, and being functional and being non-toxic right having a good headspace and being clear and being transparent and being honest yeah. and there was no real honesty in that they did sneaky tricks uh, they didn't treat you with respect they didn't they wouldn't talk to you about things if there was a problem it was very passive aggressive um you know it's locker rooms as much as i enjoyed the business and the traveling and the fans and being an athlete and an entertainer an actor in a sense yeah uh, our locker rooms were toxic. They were, they were black, you know. Uh, there's always one bad apple in there. Justin Bradshaw from the WWE was one of them in Germany. All he ever did was hack on guys. He'd wander around and swear at them and call them names with his Texas accent. And, um, you know, always one bad apple to try and make it miserable for everybody else. And backstabbing and name-calling and stealing stuff from each other's bags and, and defecating in their boots. And, and I had my boot hit on me one night before pay-per-view, and I had to go, oh, the referee was probably hit on it. It's funny now. It wasn't that tough. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you, you're certainly not the first to uh, tell a story about, uh, you know, John Bradshaw Layfield with you know those kind of uh, experiences. Um, but because of your sort of size and athleticism, um, you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, a lot of the veterans were maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a bit insecure. Uh, it's kind of sort of the thing, you know, yeah, I mean, Hogan, Hogan yeah, that, you you know, you're immediately going to get pushed, you know, forward into the spotlight, you know, to the top of the roster and, you know, because as you should be, because you're a monster and, uh, you know, um, was that the case uh, when you uh well, it will have been the case when you went to Japan. Um, who uh, was it who discovered you in Canada and brought you through to Japan? Was it Ricky Fuji? It was, yeah. And he had a guy out here. And uh, that this guy was one of those guys who was really out of shape and promoting shows and winning all the main events. <laughs> Cutting his forehead, bleeding all over the place. It was disgusting. Uh-huh. And we had some of that in Japan too, but uh, there was no call for it here. He just wanted to do a Japan style, and all the fans were just disgusted. The parents didn't want to bring the kids back ever again. But anyways, he, was, he acted as an agent for me with Fuji, and he's kind of the one that got me to Japan. And we never made it to Japan because, you know, he wasn't athletic and he wasn't muscular. And they, they just don't bring you over then. But it was great. Only Atsushi Onita was the heavyweight champion most of the time, and he was a great guy to work with. It was like a smooth dance every time. And he, um, he was never friendly to me. It was always this competitive thing, but... And then he liked me, and he always put me over. Uh, he liked my character. He pushed my character. He pushed me in the World Heavyweight Champion uh, status. Um, put me over a lot in the matches. And uh, when there were finales or something, we had a storyline of Ricky Fuji and Mike Awesome, where Mike Awesome turned heel kind of on me or, and switched me babyface more. And Ricky Fuji was part of Team Canada. And we had a, a series of three matches. And if Mike won two, then... Two out of three, then we would disband Team Canada. So we were all distraught and disarray over that. 
And uh, third match in, I ended up beating Mike and we were in victory. You know, that was a storyline. And the Team Canada gets to stay together. And uh, I, got, I was a tag team champion with Mike uh, a couple of times. Beautiful belts. So that was quite an honor, too, because I don't know. I, a lot of guys say, you know, it's all fake and this and that. But I, in some cases, they put a belt on a guy because he couldn't get over. That's sort of old school North America. But typically in Japan, they give you a heavyweight championship because you earned it. Yeah. So yeah, um, you're one of the biggest, strongest, and you could kick the crap out of pretty much anybody there or in the other promotions. Hmm. So, um, for those who uh, don't know, uh, because uh, you know a lot of the uh, listeners that I've had in the past, because it's been very, I tried to cover uh, musicians, actors, authors, etc. Uh, the the big titan sort of character. What was the the idea behind it? Was um, like who was was it? Were there any influences behind the the character and the look? Yeah, well, I you know I loved Lex Luger WCW at the time and Sting. They were two of my favorites, and Luger was just an amazing shoot. Those capped shoulders and the admin tiny waist and everything. And he could work hard, you know, and he could take lots of bumps. He wasn't one of those big prima donnas who pranced around with a bodybuilder's body and didn't want to work hard. He worked his butt off. If you look at those old matches with Sting and Flair, amazing. Same thing with Sting. He went through those matches with Flair for 40 minutes and Flair chopped his chest up so bad that he had blood blisters all over by the end of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of my favorite matches, Flair and Sting. Oh, yeah. And and so him, the Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, Randy Macho Man Savage, Travis, Rick Rude, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig is another favorite of mine. Uh, both of those guys I just mentioned are passed on now, too. It's pretty amazing. Hmm. Uh, I feel very fortunate. You know, um, Could have been me, too. Absolutely. So, you know, jumping forward to that, um, was it partly seeing all of, you know, a lot of your uh, colleagues, you know, people that you've worked with, etc., that made you uh, sort of, uh, did you sort of snap out of your pain pill addiction or was it sort of, um, you know, was it like an epiphany or whatever and then, you know, you decided, you know, I need to, you know, uh, show my experiences to people and, you know, so they don't go down the same path that, you know, yourself and a lot of your friends have uh, been down. Yeah. You know, you say the word epiphany, Paul, and that's actually the word. Uh, I talked about it in my seminars and I was sitting on the NWO bus, the New World Order bus, the one that, you know, Hogan and Holland Nash kind of created that with WCW and we're in New Japan where they're combining with WCW at the time. Yeah. I was looking out the window and I was 290 pounds, 293 I think at the time. And uh, I got kicked and stiffed and punched and chopped so hard that I never even bruised anymore. It was amazing, you know. I had skin like leather from it all. I was a wrestling machine as far as I was concerned. I couldn't get along with people when I came home. Yeah. I, I had some food going. I had some attitude. All <laughs> I knew that about myself, and I knew that I had this big defense wall up, and I knew that I could be different. I could be, and my life could be happier. And I see this little Japanese couple walking towards me, and they're staring at each other's eyes, and they're holding each other's hand. It was so cute, you know, even for me as a big, aggressive guy, I'm not my heart. And um, it's like the beauty and the beast almost right now. <laughs> Big lamb chop, sideburns, goatee, long hair, pulled into a ponytail, 293 pounds, <laughs> skin like leather, you know, and a black and heart to boot. And uh, relationship after relationship. And I see this little couple walking along and we're staring at people walking by and smiling and saying good day to them in Japanese, of course. 
And I thought, man, that's amazing. You know, I have to have that. Yeah. Because I, I don't have that. I don't. And I knew it was part of me that was stopping me from a success in the relationship. And a success from that illuminated feeling you could see in their eyes and their faces and smiling as they're walking by. They didn't have a worry or care in the world. They were totally happy and at ease. And they were looking at people and each other with this altruistic love. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a sarcastic look. It wasn't a, you know, a sexy look to each other. It was like this unconditional altruistic love that they looked at, every, at everybody at the same time. And so shortly after that, I was in the locker room, sorry, in the hotel room and, uh, usually we'd go out partying, you know, on the bars and stuff like that on the nights and, that night I decided for whatever reason to stay in and I'm digging through my bags and digging through the drawers and I didn't even know what I was looking for. I just felt I had to find something and then I found, uh, I opened up this nightstand and I found two books, one was the Bible, which I'd already read and the next one next to it was the Book of the Buddha. Cool. And yeah, so I started flipping through it and I like, that, that makes sense. That philosophy right there works for me. How come I didn't learn this stuff when I was younger? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm flipping through. I read the whole book that night. So, um, would you uh, describe yourself as a, a religious person or more a, a spiritual person? I'm spiritual. I believe in all religions. Uh, and then again, I don't believe in all their dogma and things like that, too. Uh, I was raised Catholic. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, some of the priests were doing things that were really wrong. Yeah. Uh, we know about that. And, um, the priest that married me, he was drunk all the time. <laughs> Rapping, slurring his words, and I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a wedding that could actually take place on, uh, you know, on Raw or something. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have a Rick Titan movie. <laughs> well, um, after uh, you wrestled in Japan, you then, uh, before you uh, started wrestling in the States, uh, you went to Europe. Uh, where in Europe did you go, and on whose recommendation did you uh, go there for? I was um, I was called over, so I finished up in New Japan Pro Wrestling. That was a little heartbreaking for me, just as the contract ran up from WWE three years earlier. Uh, that was kind of heartbreaking for me, too, because uh-huh. I just loved it business so much. And it was my dream, my fantasy to get WWE and make a big name for myself since I was 16 years old. Yeah. And, um, so being being gone and, and that contract running up and nobody bothering to return my calls and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I was in Austria and Germany for six months and it was cool because I learned how to speak a lot of German in my heritage. My father's Hungarian, so uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire existed years and years ago, well, many centuries ago even. Um, so I learned the language. Uh, I could speak not fluent, but I could speak full sentences and get by quite well. It was pretty cool. Vienna, Austria is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I, would, and, I, would, uh, I do actually want to go out there someday. Yeah, flowers everywhere blooming. It was June. It was warm. It was like 20 degrees at night Celsius. Uh, the gargoyles and the statues and the, the old heritage buildings. And I went and saw Sigmund Freud's house and went and looked through all the experiments that he did. He experimented with cocaine, so he didn't get high. <laughs> um, so when you were out there, um, did you? What did you learn uh, specifically? Did you just sort of bring your style over, or did you feel that you had to change your style uh, when you wrestled in Europe? Good question. It was quite different. So in the states, it's more like Europe, 
in Japan, I, I remember saying to the reporter Sakai, who came to all the matches and photographed an amazing photographer, pinpoint precision, I mean, um, we were out in the countryside, nothing but rice paddies, you know, and then there's this arena out there. And fill the arena somehow. And um, in these places in the countryside, the people would practically sit on their hands and just watch in silence. Uh-huh. And we'd work them tails off, and they're taking bumps, throwing drop kicks, flying over the top ropes as super heavyweights, you know, creaming the crap out of each other with forearms. And uh, we just couldn't get a reaction. So I went back to Sakai and I said, What do you have to do? Like, Get a chainsaw and saw your head off with these people. He says, "Oh no, Titan saw." They are watching the contest on the match. <laughs> it's interesting because they have to take judo, kendo, and karate uh, mandatory in junior high and high school. So I learned that about them, and so they were watching the athleticism, and they even cheered you as a heel, as a bad guy, if you're doing something like I did, like a hurricane rana at 290 pounds. Yeah. So was it just uh, sort of um, they watched it almost like a sort of snooker or something like that? You know, you know, they would. Uh, did they just yeah. applaud or did they, you know, jump up and scream once the match had ended, or was it kind of? Uh... It was flat the whole time in the countryside. But you go to Osaka where it's more North Americanized, and go to um, Tokyo, especially they are through the roof. The best fans on the planet by far. Yeah, they were awesome. We wrestled in. Uh, right next to the Tokyo Egg Dome, the capital of wrestling on the planet as far as I'm concerned, and just blew the roof off that place all the time. You know, and They knew who we were. And my music was um, right next door to hell by Guns N' Roses. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, I've, <laughs> so got, few, I've got a few friends who will definitely appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just got jacked on it, you know, so I'm like, <laughs> ready to go. And I actually have a Fired Up uh, speaker series coming out right now. And the fired up portion would include the calm meditations that I learned from the Tibetan Buddhist monk and calm confidence. Uh-huh. So you can go in and deep and be confident and calm within yourself and move forward with other people. And the other portion is to get psyched up, to get fired up, right? And I learned in, in before wrestling. And, uh, man, we just get flying before the matches, adrenaline through the roof. And then the fans would just knock right off. Whoa, Titan, Titan, <laughs> like that. And you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> so when uh, when you uh, were wrestling in Japan and uh, later on in Europe, um, was it your sort of Canadian connections that uh, got you noticed in the states? Because you went to ECW before you uh, went to the WWF. Yeah, Sabu worked with me in Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling (FMW). No rope barbed wire matches. Um, C4 explosive cage matches with Amida and Terry Funk, one of the best psychological matches I've ever seen in my entire life yeah. to this day. And, um, yeah, chair, steel chair shots, climbing up these rafters and falling off them. I mean, you name it. We were pre ECW. That was 1991. We were doing it. And, uh, ECW didn't even exist then. And so Sabu was brought in with his uncle, the Sheik, and the Sheik was this big star from the 70s. And he had two replaced hips. He could barely walk between the ropes. We had to work with him so gently and so soft so as not to hurt the poor old guy. Well, uh, he, but he, he, was still, he was still wrestling at that point. Oh, yeah. He was like 70 years old. He could barely walk, and we had to try and make him look good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's good acting, my friend. <laughs> so um, so uh, he was it Sabu who 
specifically got you into ECW then? Um, yeah, I was sitting at home and, um, in Calgary and working out in the gym really hard. And I just had my tryout. No, I hadn't had my tryout at WWE yet, but I was a little bit down. The promoter, uh, Onita, hadn't brought me back for a few months and didn't know if he was going to. So that's when I switched companies to WAR with Andrew. But um, Sabu phones me up out of the blue one day. He goes, Titan. I'm like, yeah. He goes, want to come to UCW? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, I'll get you a plane ticket. That was a conversation. <laughs> so that, was that uh, was that also a contract, or was that just a verbal contract then? Uh, yeah, it was just verbal. I came out for uh, a weekend shot, two matches, and I was brought back a second time. And I think their finances started to go down, so they didn't want to fly guys in from that far away anymore. And, yeah. yeah, maybe they didn't like me that much. But Sabu, you know, his intention was bring me in and put himself over on a big guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> So it, 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 it so it was never meant to be anything more than just a short term thing with ECW then because I mean it wasn't a, a long term thing at all um, was that was always the plan and were you I, I'm assuming so uh, were you just going to go back to Japan at that point or did you have the WWF interested in you at that point? Well, see what happened was that was in the summertime and then September Bret Hart got me a trial with the WWF and a wrestler guy named Frank Stiletto. And, you know, big star in Japan, and, and he knew who I was, and he comes over and he goes, oh man, I can't believe I'm wrestling Big Titan. I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're in good shape. You've been here for a little while. I said, what do you want to do, man? And he goes, oh no, I'm just here to put you over. You're Big Titan, man. <laughs> uh, well, what do you want to do? And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm just here to make you look good, man. You're a big star in Japan. I said, okay. So <laughs> we get in there, and I'm wailing on I'm stiffing him. Throwing them all over the place, <laughs> my head, just just ragdolling the poor guy to get myself over so I get hired, right? Yeah. Pick him up, do a spinning power bomb, and stuff him into the mat. I mean, it looked like I killed him, and, and the fans weren't reacting much because they didn't know who I was. Some of them were yelling out FMW and Big Titan and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but no real reaction because they don't know who the hell you are, right? And. Um, but it was good enough. I, I scared him, you know, because I was stiffing him so much. The fans were like, this guy's for real. Holy crap, right? And uh, that that got me a phone call about two weeks later. Vince McMahon called me himself. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, September 96. So it was a very quick uh, turnaround time uh, between uh, the tryout match and you just being on TV as uh, Razor Ramon. So um, when... Vince uh, called you. I mean, the the story is that you know he'd heard that you did a yeah, you know, as obviously you can a good uh, Scott Hall Razor Ramon impression. Um, so, were there ori- any original plans to bring you in as Big Titan or a variation of that, and or was it always sort of the Razor Ramon um, deal? You know, it was unfortunately always the Razor Ramon deal, and I really think Vince just did it to use me and to. Use Glenn Jacobs, except they used him well after that. He's king, of course. Yeah. Uh, to rib Scott Hall and basically to say, I created you, I own you, I've got the trademark, the copyrights. And this is what he said to me on the phone when he phoned me. Uh, because in ECW, I did a rib, you know, Stevie Richards was imitating Shawn Michaels, and uh, no, Blue Meanie was imitating Shawn Michaels with his big belly hanging out with his flex, and he do that strut. And slide his leg over to the side, and do the yoga thing with his two bicep pose, right? <laughs> so, 
So I, 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 I did not I did not believe you did because I, I remember him as the blue guy. Um, but I didn't know you also yeah. did uh, Shawn Michaels as well. Oh, hilarious, man! And then so <laughs> Richard doing a parody of Diesel, right? So you see this little guy acting like he's seven feet tall, putting his arm up in the air and going like this to people, and they're laughing. So Paulie dangerously comes in the locker room to me one day, and I did my invitation. I'm just screwing around, and uh, Paul says, "Okay." Rick, here's what I want you to do on the six-man tag. He's like, he's always <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, what the fuck do you want me to do, man? Yeah. <laughs> like that. Talky <laughs> and arrogant to him, and I'm rolling my head around, and he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you do that out there? <laughs> and I said, uh, let me think about it. Because <laughs> I skyrocket my career or be the final nail in the coffin of my career. You know? Yeah, uh, was that very much in your mind when uh, when uh, was it an easy sell to you know uh, take the the Razor Ramon character because it's on such a big uh, stage or was it sort of a you know this may be one of the last big things that I do before I retire or yeah, you know, I don't know. I just wanted to, you know, I loved being in Japan, but the food was, I lost 15 pounds every time I went over there. Uh, I banged my head in doorways all over the place because they were too short. <laughs> the showers were too short, and the wrestling was too stiff. I mean, we just flung the crap out of each other, karate kicked each other in the chest, full on. Um, we just beat up and stiff and sore all the time. And I didn't want to feel like that anymore. The stage is much lighter than that. Yeah. And then I could eat really good foods in the States, keep my weight up, go to the best gyms. Japan didn't have a lot of good gyms, sometimes not at all. Uh, and I was a workout fanatic. So um, I really wanted to get into the States. And that was always my dream since I was 16. So by this time, I'm 26, right? Yeah. And, um, so you get an offer from Vince McMahon. Might be your last opportunity. Absolutely, and you know a lot of guys at that point had worked, you know, as different gimmicks at that point. Anyway, so it, you know, it could have been one of those things. Yeah, you know, as was the case with uh, with Glenn Jacobs, that the, you know, maybe the I, I, I guess yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe the thinking was, you know, this I'll do this for a short amount of time, be off TV, and then come back as something else. Maybe I mean, was that part of the thinking That's at what, the time? Yeah, because I was thinking. Uh, I mentioned to Vince one time maybe I could do like an Antonio Banderas kind of a, a gunslinger movie. I can't remember the name of the movie right now that he did um, Bandito or I don't know what it was called. Something that wasn't quite it. But anyways, he's a Mexican and he's a gunfighter down there. Yeah, and he's got like the bullfighting uniform pants on and the black hair and the ponytail. And I thought it'd be good to switch this Razor Ramon character, pull back the curl, put it all in a ponytail. And, and uh, take on a character more like Antonio Banderas in that movie, a little bit sly, a little bit cocky still, you know, a little bit arrogant, but kind of Steven Seagal-ish, and I thought that would be cool, and I mentioned it to Vince, and uh, even the first time he asked me, Rick, the people want Razor Ramon back, and I own the copyright, the trademark, the uniform, the name, the costume, and I want you to be my new Razor Ramon. Well, how can you say no to a sales pitch like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose my... Uh personal sort of you know look back on it is very much in this you know because i understand you know what it was sort of thing but i you know i think it was one you know it was a kind of a shot fired at the competition as well and it's kind of you know a, yeah. a thing that uh, doesn't get mentioned as much as maybe it should in terms of you know the the monday night war at the time i suppose um 
Yeah, there's no clarity around it. People just thought that he was really trying to replace them. I, I don't think Vince cared. I mean, he knew the fans were going to crap on us. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what happened, especially in New York. They crap on everybody all day long anyways in New York. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, the richest people I've ever met in my life were from New York. <laughs> uh, but then I did the Razor Ramon character out in the West Coast, and there was a heavy Latino population, and they loved the Razor Ramon character. And to me, I thought it was like Batman, right? You see Michael Keaton do it. You see, um, what was his name? Val Kilmer do it. Then you see, um, God, so many oh, guys. George, George Clooney, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, George Clooney, too. So I thought it'd be cool I could slide into that character and pull it off like the way they pulled off. A lot of people said, you know, Scott Hall used to lose the accent. You got the accent, you keep it on the whole time, it's better. A lot of them said, you're better, you're stronger, you know. A lot of them said that, that you can work the character better in the ring. Um, never really had the opportunity to prove that, but, um, you know, and he was a fantastic worker. Some of the, the ladder matches he had with Shawn Michaels and the Intercontinental Championships and all that were amazing. I didn't think I was to that level of a worker, but I was – I, it was funny. One of the girls gets a pair of his old trunks, and she thought, she said, "Hey, Rick, I thought if you if you want to get some different colors for trunks for free, here's uh, one of Scott's old pair of trunks." So I was squatting 500 pounds at the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Scott's about four inches shorter than me, and I was <laughs> 285 pounds at the time, and he was probably 230 or something like that. She gives me these trunks, these blue trunks. I said, okay, let's try it out. I tried to put them on. I couldn't get them past my thighs. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is one thing I was going to ask. Uh, well, you, know, you were originally offered uh, Scott Hall's old trunks. So uh, were, I'm assuming that new pairs were then made for you at that point. Yeah. No, I already had my green and my purple ones, and that's kind of what we stuck to for a while. Yeah, those, um, those are the two that I sort of um, connect you with, because obviously he wore quite a few colours. Was that just a, a I don't know, an, an artistic choice or just a, to make keep things easier? or that you, you know, it's very expensive to get more of them made, especially... That's fair enough, uh, yeah. 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 Can you imagine walking out there and somebody grabs onto the back of your trunks? Ric Flair liked to do this and showed their butt a lot of times, but... <laughs> I certainly wasn't about to have somebody grab onto my trunks and have them rip or my genitals fall out of the front of an eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, when you uh, came up to the WWF, was it, uh, was it say, was it a six month contract? Was it a, a one year contract and then you weren't used for some of that time or was it like an appear, per appearance kind of thing? Or It was a one year contract. And, and so there were about, Six of us Canadians, including Kurgan the Giant, uh, Luke Poirier from the South African Truth Commission as well at the time. Uh, he was a big star in Germany. They totally didn't use him right either. They didn't use Kurgan right properly, you know. Um, but Brett had heat with Vince. And so Brett had gotten all of us Canadians in on a one-year contract. And Brett pissed off Vince. And then Vince just didn't treat us well after that. You know, Vince is a, he's kind of a petty person. Yeah. You know, and he, in my opinion, a small person, as much as he is, the cash doesn't mean anything when you're going to take everything that personally and, and treat people that badly um, and, and trash their whole careers because you've got an attitude problem and you can't grow up. It's kind of interesting, though, that, you know, um, on the opposite end of that, you know, he will bring just about anyone back if he feels that he can make some money. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I think everyone's come back at one point or another. Bruno Sammartino, Ultimate Warrior, even Brett. Um, 
Well, that's all he's about is money, right? Vince McMahon doesn't believe in anything else. He doesn't believe in human beings. All he ever sees is a dollar bill. And, and, but at the same time, um, you know, he would you agree, you know, that he is a wrestling promoter, so that is his main aim. I mean, do you think, uh, was it was it different in Japan with the promoters? Were they more sort of personable and cared more about the rest of the sort of thing? They kind of did, but you, you got a good point there. I guess because I've managed World Health Clubs out here in Calgary, yeah. and your people are your gems, and it's the goose or the golden egg, right? Yeah. It, are you going to treat that goose well and keep stroking it, see keep popping out those golden eggs, or are you going to kill it, cut it open, try and get all the golden eggs out right now, but it's greed, and then the goose is dead, and you can't get any more golden eggs. Hmm. Right? Yeah, I see. I'm... You empower them, you teach them as much as you can, you... you um, give them a little bit of an ego trip and a little bit of a boost and, and uh, you know, encourage them and get behind them and get to know them as a human being, get to know what's going on in their relationships and um, and be there for them as a coach and a counselor. I think that's sort of how I first started getting into more coaching people because yeah. I was coaching my sales staff all the time and they'd have a bad month, maybe you know, almost in tears or something and or my assistant manager, Jen, she get in an argument with her boyfriend and have a really horrible day and I'd sit there and coach her all day long until she felt better, you know? Yeah. That's what a good manager or an owner of a country a company does. They they treat their people like gold and they're there for them emotionally too. Not not completely uncaring and dead in the heart. Hmm. Well um did you have to uh, speak to, uh, or report or whatever to anyone in particular who worked for the company? Was it Pat Patterson or Jim Ross? Because obviously, like, were you actually, you know, closely connected with Jim Ross during that time because of the storyline? Or no, it was the same deal with Jim Ross. Oh, okay. Yeah, not a care in the world. Yeah, so you know, his character, that sort of heel character that he was playing at the time, um, the disgruntled sort of employee, was that very true to life then, in your opinion? No, because he was super emotional in those. When you see this this man, he is so pan faced and dead in the eyes. Uh, he didn't give a crap whether you turned into a pile of dust or lit on fire in front of him and died on the spot, he'd just walk away and go on with his time. Same with Vince McMahon. Mm. They did not care about you at all, and they didn't ever get emotional. Do, do you think the, uh, the attitudes were different, though, to, uh, you know, Brett or Michaels or, you know, uh, uh, among the sort of top tier sort of thing? Cause, um, they were, but it was, again, passive-aggressive and childish and, and uh, little girl-like sometimes throwing tantrums with them, because you know that Vince had a problem with Stone Cold for a while. Vince had a problem with Sean for a while. They always got in fights and arguments. Sean's the first to admit that. Yeah. I mean, you know, come on, grow up. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I mean, was was that your sort of um, uh, your opinion at the time as well, or were you just sort of you know? I was disgusted. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's uh, really interesting. No, so I mean, how did uh, was did Glenn feel the same way as well? Were you very close uh, together? Uh, did you travel together at the time? Yeah, we traveled together. Glenn was pretty tan faced too, but you know, we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. He was a good guy, um, but he was pretty stoic too, and he was very into what he was doing. He would read and he would uh, sit on that cycle. We, we traveled Mexico together out with Jake Snake too, and. Uh, he, was, he was very methodical about everything, very mathematical about everything he did. Mm. And uh, 
you know, I think being a, a coach and being a professional speaker, I connect with my audience and I care about them. And if you don't, they're not going to, they're not going to want to come see you because if you're a transformational speaker, as my title is, you've got to get into their hearts and into their minds and take them through these meditations and rock their world, you know, and show them a different way and find the opposite of their negative emotions deep within them during a trance-like state. And so they can be implanted in the subconscious mind forever so that it does change their life and it is permanent. No, yeah, I agree, and I I really want to get more into that, uh, as you know, before we uh before we wrap up. But I do have a. I hope you don't mind uh, me asking about the uh, WWF uh time that you were there. Um, just because I'm I'm such a big fan yeah. of of that period, and you know, obviously you were you were there during that time. Um, when you went down to AAA, uh, what was your? Um, do you remember what your last uh TV appearance on WWF was? Was it the Royal Rumble match or? I think it might have been, you know, and that was a, a lousy low to go out on getting pitched out of the ring after. It wasn't. Minutes. It wasn't great. You'd, uh, that's when the music didn't even work when you came out as well. Um, and there wasn't. Yeah, the, there wasn't a countdown clock, and yeah. Yeah, they they just there's a lot of ribs that go on in wrestling, and it makes me wonder if that was a rib to just to really downplay me and kind of shoo me out the door because the character wasn't getting over. What do you expect? You yeah. know, you give a secondhand character to somebody. It's like the, the fake Undertaker came in and people crapped all over him, right? Yeah. You, you can't do that. You don't do that. If you'd brought in Big Titan or Rick Titan, that would have gotten over. Uh, I agree. And I'm, I'm actually surprised as well because, you know, Vince, you know, at that, at, at that time, I kind of think it's always been that way. You know, the big athletic sort of, you know, monsters would have been, you know, you would have been perfect for WWF at that time, I would have thought. And yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you would have thought so as well. And that's why the Razor uh, character might have pro was probably a bit of a shock at the time. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really want to do it. Um, but again, you know, I was going to be offered probably triple of what I was making in Japan and I could travel in the States and be a star in the States. And that was my dream since I was 16 years old and it was 10 years in the making. And I thought, if I don't do this now, I may never get in there. Yeah. So I said yes to it. But I said to him when he first asked me to do it, or, or sold me on doing it, I should say. <laughs> Told me I was going to do it. I <laughs> uh, said, so, is it okay if we call me Razor something else? Or, you know, if we change the character, even evolve it a little bit later on, because it, it's not going to get over with, you know? And he said, well, the people want Razor Ramon back. And he knew they didn't, right? Mm. He just wanted to get away and embarrass Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and say, I created you and I can destroy you and I can create you again. And, I am gone. So it was around that time that you went to Triple uh, A as part of a sort of talent exchange. Uh, was it after the Rumble or was it before that? I, I, I know it's a very specific sort of timeline question that I'm asking at this point because um, I, I saw I, I saw a YouTube interview with you know you and uh, Glenn in character, and that was actually you know even though it was in those characters, it was a really good interview, and it just showed you um, showed the audience what could be done if maybe Vince had uh, let you off the leash a little bit and uh, be a bit more creative with the characters? Yeah, thank you. You know, I watched that again a while back too and I thought that was pretty bang on. Yeah. And, and we did it sort of evolve the characters to make them a little bit darker. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit you of know? a different look. I mean, how did it? How did the Mexican uh, crowd uh, take to you? Were they familiar with Razor and Diesel? Or Yeah, and they actually thought that we were the originals until Conan 
He was friends with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and WCW, and he was trying to get himself back into WCW at the time, too. So he was bashing us and stuff in the newspapers out there, you know, saying Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are the real guys, these guys are fakes and all that stuff. But Mexicans didn't care. You know, we were big guys. We were athletes. We were wrestling their top guys, and we were kicking the crap out of them. I mean, we weren't stiffing them, but maybe a little bit. Yeah. And we were monsters and, and totally dominating out there. And Glenn was 320 pounds, six foot eight for God's sake. <laughs> I hope everyone's enjoying my interview with Rick Titan. I'll be back in a jiffy. You tired of paying high prices at your local barbershop? Look no further. Craig Miller Barbershop is based in Walls End, Newcastle upon Tyne. Close to all public transport facilities and accessible for wheelchair users, even celebrities, you CMB shop. For lads and dads, we have a range of games consoles in the shop to keep everyone occupied. No appointment necessary. To find us, visit www.craigmillerbarber.com. And now, back to the shear. When did your contract officially end? A uh, year down the road, 1997, September. September 97. So, uh, yeah. during that time, because obviously you know, the Royal Rumble was in January, um, what were they doing with you at that time? Were they doing anything at all? Or? Yeah, they sent us, they kept us working, you know, and they kept paying us, which was great, which I guess they were obligated to do to do the contract anyways. But we went down to Memphis, Tennessee, and, and wrestled with Jerry King Lawler and Brian Christopher. And, and then they had uh, Razor Ramon drop his character. You can find that on YouTube too and become Rick Titan again. Yeah. And then uh, Wrestle uh, came and he came out as Unabomber later under a mask. And people were saying, um, oh, that's Kane. You can't tell that's him under the mask. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so um, when the uh, – was it around about the time when the contract ended when uh, – because you've told the story before when you uh, called Vince and he basically uh, said to never call him again. Um, was that at the end of the contract? Yes, I phoned him and I, I called him on his personal number. It's funny because the first phone call he made to me after my trial was, Hello, Rick, this is Vince McMahon. Please call me at my home number at your earliest convenience. Yeah. And I was through the roof. Yes, right? I got a job in the WWF finally. And I phoned him up and uh, he was like, Yep, Rick, I, uh, our guys, uh, one of our agents had seen you in ECW in Philadelphia doing the Razor Ramon character. And the people want Razor Ramon back. And I was like, yeah. No. <laughs> At least you got cool, pyro, got cool pyro with it, you know. Yeah, it was cool pyro. <laughs> and I had some good video with that. And that's a superstar moment. And, you know, if any character I could ever play you know, as an actor, uh, it was my favorite character. It was a lot of fun. I love the Latino character. I love the Scarface innuendos, you know. Um, take a look and say hello to the bad guy and all that stuff. Say hello to my little friend. And, you know. <laughs> so, um, when uh, was it uh, Jim Ross who made the call to let you go, or was it just once the contract ended that was just it wasn't even spoken you, about? Or? You were a ghost. you were a ghost. Contract was up, and nobody called you. Oh, okay. Um, so it did so you immediately went back to uh, New Japan. Um, and I see. I, I don't know too much about this uh, sort of time period, but they had the NWO Japan stable, so um, that included. I think Mike Rotundo was involved in that as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he was over there. He was a great guy. Scott Norton was over there. He um, was a wild monster. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, what? How um, connected to WCW were they at the time? Were you under a WCW contract, or that was purely New Japan? And um, I had a year, so I was there for six months wrestling. I was getting over really big, uh, really my biggest, strongest, angriest I'd ever been, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, more pain than ever before because it was such a hard-hitting, fast-paced promotion. Um, and uh, I, I was just angry all the time, but it worked, man. When I was out there, the fans saw the intensity, and they were scared of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, um, did you uh, did you get to meet uh, Scott Hall at all and talk about the Razor thing? Or never met him. Never met him. I heard an interview with him once. So it was kind of flattering. It's sort of like having somebody be your own Elvis in the theater. <laughs> 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 I can understand that. Um, so yeah, when you went back to uh, New Japan, that's when uh, your career pretty much uh, ended. You wrestled your last match in '99. Um, so was that? Did you go into that match knowing that that was going to be your last match? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. So it, it was an emotional thing, I can imagine. Did it? Did, was it promoted that it was going to be your last match, or was it just kind of an unspoken mm-hmm. thing? It was the contract, same thing, just ran up and nobody wanted to talk to me about it. They didn't want to base it or deal with my emotions. And, you know, I wasn't, I was just sad and depressed about it, you know, and I knew my career was over. Yeah. Um, I wrestled Ashimola, like I said, and cracking C5, C6 vertebrae. And for about two years before that, like I said earlier, you know, I knew it was coming to an end. I knew my body couldn't take it much longer. So I was getting a little bit darker and a little bit darker, you know, which worked really well. It was part of the character. I mean, Big Titan was an evil, high herd of the train tracks kind of a guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the meanest, angriest, most explosive individuals they probably ever had. So, so after you uh, retired, um, did you look into changing your uh, sort of uh, workout regime or your diet or anything? Because obviously you're, you're still in really good shape, but you you have a different build uh, to how you looked. Um, was that an immediate thing or was that just... Because something that I did read was that it was the amount of just muscle in your neck which you know stopped you from getting an even more serious in- injury with the uh, broken neck. Yeah, well, my neck was wider than my head at the time and my trap, <laughs> my ears. So thank God for that because I think it saved me from really breaking it. And I'm very fortunate I could be paralyzed from the neck down. Yeah. You know, really lucky. And I think about that almost every day, actually. So that's a blessing by God uh, to save my life and, and also to come out of that painkiller darkness and all the alcohol and be able to share it with others. I. I speak at recovery centers regularly to give them hope and inspiration to clean up their lives. And um, I talk about it a little bit. But I talk about being addicted to emotions as well. Yeah. I had a let go seminar. I had a self-sabotage, crush yourself sabotage seminar. I come up this Thursday, actually. Um, and addiction is a funny thing. People are addicted to chocolate. People are addicted to sugar. They're addicted to overeating. Yes, uh, I'm, addicted- I'm addicted to chocolate. <laughs> because, yeah. 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 So it's not just addiction to drugs and alcohol. As human beings, we all have this draw, this hook. And what happens is when we're emotionally imbalanced and we don't know what our personal core values are and we're not in alignment with our highest values, then we go to these addictions to make us feel better because our emotions are out of whack. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I speak about and that's what I coach people on is 
uh, if you're hanging on to a past relationship and you can't let go, because I've been there, and, and it keeps on the let go process, L-E-T-G-O, it's pretty cool, to look deep within while in meditation to explore, you know, L-E, the key transfer that a shempa, that emotional charge out of your gut, out of your sternum, you know, that feeling, physiology, physiologically, you can feel it. And then the G is to gray it out. So imagine something like your very first job, your very first girlfriend, or even a friend when you're a kid that you can't really see their face. It's kind of blurred out. And so to exaggerate that blur and that grayness and fogging it out, fogging it out. And then finally the O is to make an order to the universe so that you know what you want. And it's very specific. And it's like being a millionaire. You know, if you want to know, I'm not a millionaire, but I have friends who are, and they tell me this. <laughs> I do fairly well, but I'm not there yet anyway. Yeah. Um, but you got to know exactly the price and exactly the money that you want. So when you make that order to the universe, if you want a new mate, you've got to know exactly her eye color, her hair color, her body type, and her personality type. You know, If you ask for a mate, please, God, give me somebody so I can have a relationship in my life. And uh, it could turn out to be totally physically or emotionally wrong for you. You know, It could be verbally or emotionally abusive. And you got the wrong person because you didn't put out the right preciseness. When you moved into the uh, transformational uh, speaking, um, you were also you were going to schools as well, I believe. Um, is that what you started with, uh, sort of um, talking to younger uh, people, or was it a mix at the start? Yeah, I, I really just I learned. You know, I've been studying Taoism and Hinduism and. Uh, Yoga philosophy, not necessarily asana, the exercise, because I used to manage world health clubs, as I said, <clears throat> and those yoga instructors only taught the exercise of yoga. And then you do a five minute meditation at the end of it. And then all the people, including the instructor, go out in the heavy traffic and they start swearing and yelling at people and flipping them the bird. Yeah. <laughs> so it's supposed to be transformational. You go, this is what my teacher, the monk, taught me. You go into your meditative state and you find a sense of peace and calm. You come out of it and you carry that with you wherever you go after that. So even if you're in traffic and you're in a serene state, somebody cuts you off, you're okay. It's no big deal. So do you uh, do uh, yoga um, and meditation sessions as well? Or is that not really a problem? I don't teach. Yeah. I do a little bit. And because of my hip problem, my neck problem, it really helps me out. Actually, uh, Diamond Dallas Page... I contacted him, and then he said, you want a phone call? And I said, sure. So we chatted on the phone. Great guy. And he says, well, you know what I do for all the boys? I give my DDP, DDP yoga set. So uh, he mailed me on his DVDs and his, his yoga mat, very good quality yoga mat. I'll give DDP a little plug here. <laughs> Diamond Dallas Page, really great guy, and his yoga stuff is pretty fantastic. And it's got some dynamic tension flexing in it from Bruce Lee in the seventies and Arnold Schwarzenegger style and Hulk Hogan style. Mm. Well, it's it's um, the DDP yoga. Um, I I I want to get the you know the full package with the the yoga mat myself because I'm I'm out of shape. I need to I need to get that you know uh, fixed. Uh, but there was a there was a small amount of time when I had a really a bad back. I pulled a muscle and it was quite bad. And there were some uh, sort of sample uh, videos of what he did, and I followed it and I did it for about a month, and it it made everything feel better. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll gladly you know. Uh, even though I haven't, uh, don't have the full thing, I will gladly uh, plug DDP Yoga as well because it, it, it seems to just you know sell you on the results because you know you just have to watch any of the videos or see you know Jake Roberts or Scott Hall or anything like that. You know, 
Yeah, he's he's helped people rehab quite well with it too. He's done some amazing things. So I'm I'm really happy for him and, and uh, he's transforming people's lives too. But the whole point I was kind of getting at with yoga is that um, even with DDP stuff, because he didn't study the philosophies of yoga. Philosophies of yoga of yoga means yoga, which means in union, which means in union with God or the universe, which means going to meditation, finding a bliss state, and being connection, mm-hmm. right? Find your most peaceful state of peace and calm and get into bliss state, enlightenment. And then you'll be happy no matter what. No matter what happens in your life, if you're in a really, really good space, just like if something happens and you're in a great mood, right? Something really great just happened. You, know, you met the girl of your dreams. You just made uh, you know $500 in one day or something like that. And, and you're excited and you're stoked and fired up about that. You've got a big grin and you're just laughing and People can cut you off in traffic. Somebody can chew you out. Um, you can have the worst day in the world, but you're still on top of the world. Yeah. You know, that, that sensation, if you go into bliss state on a regular basis, you transform your life because then you're carrying blissfulness and happiness with you wherever you go. And no matter what happens around you, the whole world can cave in and you can still laugh and you can still be happy and feel good. That's and that's pretty, the transfer. That's pretty awesome. So, um, so it, you know, at this point in your life, um, do many things still bug you or annoy you, or can you, you know, immediately sort of talk yourself out of situations um, because of everything that you've learned? That's another good question. <laughs> um, I I was in a relationship up until about December, and we split up, and it, it hurt because I thought that was going to go somewhere. But I did my let go process, and I kept doing it. Within forty eight hours, I wasn't hurting anymore. Yeah. Usually it would take weeks or months to get over it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, people would remain hurt for years afterwards. Oh, yeah, but I got... absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and the oh, compassion. Sorry. We are, we, yeah. So we'll keep headbutting. I'll, I'll just shut up and let you yeah. talk. Sorry. Well, just a quick thing here. The Tibetan Buddhist monk, his name was Kunsag, what he taught me over and over again was the meaning of compassion, exchanging self with others knowing what they're feeling, how they're feeling, and really putting yourself in their shoes and seeing through their eyes and feeling their feelings and getting a sense of it. And um, to, to have compassion for other people you don't know what they're going through. And he said we should, or, or we think that people should or should not do certain things. He yeah. said, but really there are a million different reasons why they should be doing exactly as they are. Because we don't know their experience. Yeah, so uh, you're a big um, uh, proponent of empathy, then. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I, th- I think what? it's more more of a it's more of a useful thing than sympathy. Um, yeah, sympathy is uh, unhealthy. So over the board, and you get too attached, and you fall into the negative emotions that the other person's having. And if they're really upset or really hurt or really angry, then you start getting angry for them against their ex, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, they're really hurt uh, over something, then you start to get really hurt, and then you're almost in tears when they're in tears. That's not healthy because it, it's like the airplane thing, right? You put the oxygen mask on yourself first and take care of self first so it's at its best and highest, and then you can help others. Because if you're at your worst and lowest, how can you help others? You've got nothing to offer. That's absolutely true. Um, well, what I'm going to do is uh, my friend uh, Ed, he uh, was commissioned to make a series of videos uh, called Empathy Explorer. And I'm going to uh, I'll send you those videos because I think you'll uh, really enjoy them. And, um, you know, if it's something that you feel that you could 
you know, shared to other people, then, you know, it, he's he's not looking to, you know, make anything from this. This is just something that he, he was asked to do, and it was going to be a, uh, I think it was going to be a, um, a, a bigger thing than it was, but it's all on YouTube, um, and, uh, you know, he's very proud of them, and, you know, I'm proud of him that he was able to eloquently, uh, you know, make a five- you know, talk about empathy in different uh, different aspects because he really opened my mind up to um, you know different aspects of uh, empathy. Um, I would love to get him. I'd love to get in communication with him. I think that's great. I also think um, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money. People seem to think that if you're a coach or you're more spiritual, that you should do it all for free. Well, I wouldn't go to my neighbor across the the way here and say to him, "I know you're a mechanic and you should come fix my car for free." Yes. And I do have a lot of people saying they want to go for coffee with me. And unfortunately, I've got to monetize monetize my situation. Not unfortunately. It's not unfortunate. When you do a job and you provide great service to people and you get remuneration for it, then it's in fair exchange. It's in balance, right? Absolutely. I think as well, you know, it... um... Um, I'm trying to think of it. Not seal of approval, but it, it, it kind of is. But it shows that there is quality there as well. Um, yeah. You know, well, I think it's okay to ask for money and maybe even take them off YouTube and package them together and, and go and say, hey, this has high value. You know, yeah. what's the value? What's the cash value of you feeling better and being stressed or, or, or feeling uh, healed over your past relationship that – my mother, for the rest of her life, and she was 75 years old right now, her father was an alcoholic, my grandfather, and he uh, was not good to them. And uh, she still hurts about it to this day. Imagine carrying that hurt with you for 75 years. Yeah. that's. Uh... Or listen to Ed's audios or videos and watch them, and you'll learn about empathy and understanding other people and understanding yourself and your own emotions. You get healed. And you don't carry that crap with you for the rest of your life. That's worth money. Oh, absolutely. And it's a it's a different area, but you know, as a as yeah. an artist, I'm a, a musician. Um, you know, I I have to, you know, I feel like every time I write a song, I'm just pouring all of my emotions into this song. But then I sort of need to, you know, then I you know had to get over the fact that I'm trying to you know sell my emotions. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from with that. You know. Yeah, you can't be ashamed of doing something just because it comes easy to you and you love it. Yeah. Uh, you can't hold yourself back from making money from it because you're creating and providing great value. And just because you're talented at something, just like being in wrestling, I got remunerated for that quite handsomely. And I sacrificed my body for it, too. So at this point, though, uh, you know, with nagging injuries, are they going to get worse as the years go on or is this as worse as it's going to get, hopefully? You know, that's what I'm told. But another thing that I do, Paul, is I meditate right before I go to sleep. Uh-huh. And I lay in my bed. There's no pressure on my hip because my hip's been really bad. It's the femur bone, the leg bone. is supposed to have a heart shape at the top. And I've been told that mine's pretty flattened out, which means I'll have to have a hip replacement at a fairly young age of 46 right now. Yeah. I take people into their 60s before that happens. And because I railroaded my hips so many times, probably 10,000 times in 10 years by dropping elbows on that side from six feet in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, at that point, when, when you were younger, we will, uh, we are 
uh, wrapping up because I, I know I've, I've taken quite a bit of your time. Um, when you were taking all those bumps and stuff, was it just the young mindset or did you think, oh, in 20 years, <laughs> I'm really going to be paying for this with, you know, hip replacements and, you know. No, I never really thought that. I thought I was invincible. You know, I was <laughs> yeah, everyone parent. does. Everyone does at that age. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially when you're, uh, like I said, about two hundred and eighty pounds and benching four hundred pounds. And I mean, I was balancing, and I'd grab a guy by his jean jacket and just pick him off the ground and throw him into a wall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crazy. Well, again, as well though, that's something that you can. Uh that I imagine you do teach to, uh, you know, the younger uh, sort of people that you uh, talk to that, you know, things will eventually have consequences. <laughs> yeah, but when you're young, you don't really listen. I know I didn't listen. My parents used to try and tell me things. And then my dad said, he's not going to listen. He's going to do whatever he wants anyway. Yeah. He was right. And that's what kids will probably do too. But if you can provide a shining example, and I would say this too, is to be that person that you want to be and how you want to be and who you want to be, and lead by example. Do the right thing and show and exemplify. My my current girl I'm dating right now, she's got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old. And uh, I'm a gentleman and I coach them constantly when I'm around them. Because if I'm going to become their stepfather, I want to have a very positive impact in their life. And, um, you know, her ex is uh, he's a different guy. <laughs> yeah. And so they're learning some things from him, too. And I, so I'm really working my best on, on giving them a nice shining example, and that's what we have to do. That's awesome. Um, well, before we uh, before we go, I want to thank you for uh, taking part on the uh, on the podcast. Um, we can uh, is it it's ricktighton.com uh, that uh, people can visit. Um, yeah, ricktighton.com. They can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. I've, uh, I've got some things uh, for sometimes for free audios uh, on stress, on anger. And letting go of the past. Um, I've got my book, Wrestling with Consciousness, my ebook available on my website. So it's a cool book about the wrestling industry, but also the contrast to that and then studying with the Buddhist monk. That's awesome. Well, that's something I was going to ask as well, because obviously, you know, uh, you live in, uh, you live currently in Canada. That's correct. Do you li- yes. Okay, cool. Um, just, you know, the internet is a wonderful thing. You know, if you're someone from the UK can, you know, uh, look into what you do and uh, get advice and etc. cetera. Uh, do you uh, do uh, sort of one-on-one sessions over the internet or is that just a person, like one-on-one person kind of thing? No, I love it. I do Skype video with people and uh, sort of like we're talking here, we talk through the person's problem. If they've just gone through a a harsh breakup, if they just lost their job, you know, if they just lost a bunch of money like I did after I finished wrestling or the real fraction burn and I was depressed heavily for a year. And like you said earlier, I like to see people smooth through that, ease through it. Because it's so difficult for me and so such a deep down a rock bottom for me that I don't want to see people go through that. And if I can help them out, I'd love to. That's awesome. Well, Rick, I want to thank you for taking part. I, I always say this, that, you know, every week, because uh, this podcast, uh, the underlying sort of uh, theme of the podcast is that I am uh, moving into self-employment and this is a part of my self-employment. And I'm just trying to, as well as being a musician, I'm trying to build the podcast up as much as possible. And uh, your involvement in the podcast is, it's an amazing thing because, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't want to make you feel old, but I watched you growing up <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, 
it, like the aim was to talk to you know like i say actors musicians authors uh filmmakers and i wanted to move into uh, wrestlers but you you know as well as your wrestling career you have this you know fascinating other thing going on which you know has been amazing to talk about and uh hopefully we'll get to talk about it more uh soon and uh, not necessarily on the podcast just you know um and uh yes yeah, so i'm sure everyone will really enjoy this interview and I, uh again i want to thank you for taking some time out Oh, my pleasure, Paul. Anytime, and uh, it was fun for me too. So, reliving a few things, and then also being able to share some cool, positive things for people that maybe going through a tough time. Okay, well, thank you very much, and we'll we'll talk soon. Okay, so uh, after the interview, we kept talking, and I just wanted to add this little bit in because I'm a big fan of the Truth Commission, and we started uh, talking about that. So I'm just going to add that in now uh, as a little, I suppose, a bonus or Easter egg, and then we will talk about next week's show. Okay, cool. Well, uh, one thing you said about the uh, the Truth Commission, I'm, I love the Truth Commission. Maybe I'm just a, a big fan of the secondary sort of... Uh, or the craziest yeah. sort of uh, characters at the time, but um, I loved. I mean, it makes sense as well that once Brett had left, the Truth Commission kind of disappeared off uh, off TV at the time. But um, I loved the uh, the Commandant, the original uh, yeah. South African. He he was so cool. I mean, I think he was just an actor who was uh, brought in, but he was just so. Um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, but he, he just played that to a T. And I love the Jackal as well. I mean, you know, I, I assume that you had a lot of connection with Don Callis, uh, both yeah, being one of the best matches in my career with him when I was about 23. And he called all the match just like Ric Flair. And he was putting me over and putting me over and putting me over and popping the crowd and, and angering the crowd. And he was so and It was awesome. Yeah, I, I just love the idea behind the, the cult leader uh thing and then like, i don't know how familiar you are when um when the oddities uh, came in and he was the first manager of that he was kind of uh his character was to sort of it's horrible but to sort of take advantage of the sideshow freaks sort of thing <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it didn't last long at all but i i just thought it was so dark and twisted and just you know and i, I don't think it was well it may be offensive to some people but i i just kind of I love that you know there's uh there's a, a show in the UK called The League of Gentlemen it was a, a comedy and it was a dark comedy and there was this guy called Papa Lazaru who had a circus of uh, freaks sort of thing and, uh, like the bearded lady and everything and uh kind of reminded me of that and I, I just can't believe that during that time they didn't do more with with Don Callis yeah unbelievable yeah. um well, I think that was political too you know it's so unfortunate because there's so many great talents that that uh, it was just political, you know, the ties to Brett or whatever it was. And, you know, it was nice that Brett got us in there, maybe never had that opportunity. So I'm not saying anything negative about that, but, yeah, you know, and then just good business. When it's ego before business, I don't think that's a way to run business either. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, well, I, it was cool that you brought up, uh, uh, and I'm really bad for forgetting his name, but the guy who played uh, Sniper in the Troop Commission. Yeah. Uh, what was his name again? I, I... Is it Barry? Um, the, the the Canadian, the French Canadian guy who played. Uh, oh, Luke, Luke Poyer, who played Rambo in Germany. Yes. Um. I mean, he's sort of one of those. Uh. You know, where where are they now? Sort of thing. Do you did you keep in contact with him or 
He became a police officer in, in the U.S. I can't remember exactly where in the U.S., but he's a cop, yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. No? Thanks again to Rick. Um, yeah, I, I understand that, you know, people, because he was kind of, you know, he admits himself, uh, you know, a secondary character in WWF, but he was a bigger star elsewhere, that, you know, um, it's, it's usually, you know, those kind of guys who are the most entertaining with stories. And, you know, they kind of take you by surprise. And I thought, you know, it was tremendous being able to chat to him. And he was very open and he gave me, as usual, because I'm I'm very cheeky, uh, he gave me almost too much of his time um, because I had so much to ask him. And, it, you know, even after the interview finished, there was things that I should have asked about his USWA Um uh, stint after when he got sent down there by WWF, it was fascinating to see that footage because he went down as Razor Ramon, and he um, got he was attacked by the original Truth Commission. I love the Truth Commission, the Commandant uh, Tank, the original Truth Commission that didn't even make it on WWF TV. Um, yeah, got attacked by the Truth Commission, and then Razor turned face and then dumped the Razor character on TV. Which uh, again was fascinating. It was fascinating to see the end of that character, um, and you know, obviously, it wasn't long after that that he well, he became big titan again, and then then he went back to Japan after that. But uh, yeah, find those videos on YouTube. Um, you know, the Memphis stuff is really fascinating anyway because obviously there was a lot of talent exchange at the time, uh, but there was also cross promotion with storylines. You know, the USWA in '93 when Vince went down there as a heel. You know, I found that stuff a few years ago and that absolutely blew my mind because he's a very different kind of heel. Imagine sort of Jake the Snake, you know, in terms of his promo style. Um, and it's just, it's just like an alternate universe to see Vince in 93 as a heel against Lawler. And, you know, a lot of the guys, you know, Tatanka, Savage, Bret Hart, you know, the biggest faces of the time went down as heels. And it's just, it's incredible to see some of those promos. <laughs> so, yeah, um, before I go this week, um, just a few hours ago, um, it, it, my sleeping pattern's terrible. So um, it's kind of weird, uh, out of my friends list on Facebook or whatever, because I'm usually awake. Uh, I usually find out about wrestlers' deaths uh, first, and um, just a few hours ago, uh, China passed away, and obviously it's, uh, you know, I'm recording this Thursday, it's going to get uploaded Friday, everyone's going to know about it anyway, but it kind of, you know, having Rick on the show as a transformational speaker, it is kind of, you know, it was kind of apt, really, you know, uh, considering what's happened with uh, China, and it just, it seemed like she had gotten her life on track, but you never really know. Um, I'm, I, I don't want to assume, but I wouldn't be surprised if she was suffering from depression. You know, she always, uh, more recently, came across kind of timid, and, um, you know, it's it's hard to say if she was being manipulated by people. Um you know, if you watch the interview she she did with Vince Russo, I, I think Russo was very, very patronizing to her. Um, and, you know, none of the stuff that he promised her during the interview really ever happened. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, acting roles, etc. Um, but she seemed to be in a good place, but obviously not. And, you know, if 
if it is because she looked physically fit, she looked fitter than she'd been in years. You know, she looked she looked very lean, but she looked very in shape. Um, if it was depression, or you know, if it was an overdose, I, I like again by the time the show comes out, it's, it'll probably be common knowledge. But um, you know, it just shows you that especially depression has to be taken seriously. You know, it's kind of. It's kind of one of those things, you know, even the government are starting to, well, the government sort of almost dismiss it really and consider that you're ready for work just because you don't have a physical uh, problem. But depression is, you know, I've, I've been through some shit and I've never got to the point of depression, but I think it, you know, it could have come close sometimes. But, you know, I've had friends who have had depression who suffer from anxiety and stuff like that. And God, you just, you know... You can't really change their mindset, but all you can really do is be there for them. Um, and if they need it, and yeah, so that that's pretty much all on that. But, um, you know, China kind of encapsulated that sort of, you know, the period of growing up for me as a wrestling fan, you know, 97 to 2000. And, um, you know, I... And I know that, you know, she's had detractors and everything in terms of what she was able to do in the ring. Maybe, I, like, I don't care. Like, I judge by the character I see on TV even more than, you know, the person outside the ring. But she also happened to be a very nice person. Um, you know, it, she played the character really well. And, you know, she was always, you know, her time in WWE or WWF was very storyline you know, centric sort of thing, and, you know, she did an amazing job, and obviously she knocked down barriers and everything, and, you know, it, it's kind of crazy that she was in the Connell Champion, and obviously she's, you know, taking some maybe unfair sort of flack for having that belt, but, like, you know, she was number one contender for the world title at one point, she was in the King of the Ring, she was in the Royal Rumble, it just, it, during that experimental time, you know, she she rose to the occasion, in my opinion, and um, it whether she now goes in the Hall of Fame or whatever, that's just a I I, I can't see it happening personally. Like I, they have to acknowledge it, you know. I, I'm sure all of all of the fans listening know the relationship that is you know kind of soured between her and WWE over the years, um, and for the various reasons why. But it, it's very hard to say what the how they're going to react to this but if i could say one thing to WWE, it you know i know they pay for drug um not counseling but uh sort of you know they pay for them to go to rehab um but there are so many other issues with you know you would think that because of the whole concussion thing i, th I know that they're, they're sort of taking steps with that and I, they probably have to by law now um uh, but with ex-wrestlers i think if they're trying to you know, um, stick out the olive branch or whatever, as she was doing in, you know, footage that we've seen where, you know, the WWE secretary wouldn't even take a call from her and stuff like that. You know, I just think they need to, you know, just be more open. You know, they have been with, like, Bruno Sammartino. She, he did, he, you know, or Billy Graham. He said far worse things than what China's ever said. And, you know, but I think they just need to, you know, help some of the, you know, people that are best, certainly best known for their time in that company, and probably made that company a lot of money, 
Um, I just think that they need to, you know, take a closer look. Because at the end of the day, I think WWE is going to come under scrutiny from this because she was very much a victim of fame, uh, as some of them are, you know, like, say, Sonny, Tammy Sitch, um, a lot of them who have died already, uh, you know, a lot of them really, I suppose, don't know how to cope with life after being in the spotlight, and, um, you know, going back to Rick, you know, I give him all the credit in the world, because he has coped with it, and he's come out of the other end, and um, he is now helping people, and, you know, I think he's amazing for what he does, so, yeah, um, next week, yeah, for the first time in a while, I've been able to sort of do a few interviews, and I can tell you next week's guest, which is good, <coughs> as I cough, um, and I'll, <laughs> I'd, I'd turn away, because again, you don't want coughing in your ears, basically, but next week is the musician, uh, slash songwriter, slash performer, slash producer, uh, Chris Price, now, Chris is building a name for himself within the industry as one of the, you know, almost really the go-to guy for uh, production um, and arrangement. And he is responsible for the latest Emmett Rhodes album happening. This may mean not a lot if you are wrestling fans, but Emmett Rhodes was considered the next Paul McCartney uh, to the point where he, one of his first album reviewers thought it was the Beatles uh that made another album, um, but called themselves Emmett Rhodes, which, you know, it just speaks volumes. Emmett is incredible. So, yeah, we go entirely into the backstory behind the new release by Emmett Rhodes. I think this is the first time that Chris has ever really went into it to this degree, especially for a podcast. You know, he was responsible for Linda Pack's album. Uh, again, those who, you know, I uh, probably don't need explaining to them, but Linda Pahak's an absolute legend. Um, and, you know, his own work is just some of the most beautiful uh, music that I've ever heard in my life. So that will be up next Friday. Uh, if you like this episode, like, comment, download, subscribe, whatever you need to do on podbean.com. Uh, find Pablo's Poppin' Podcast on Facebook. Do check out the sponsors, the Back Pain Relief book. Uh, is uh, the link is available underneath the show on the Podbean page. Um, Andrew's incredible. You know, his, uh, his results speak for themselves, and he has had national exposure recently on QVC uh, demonstrating back pain relief products. So he's uh, he is the guy that you need to go to if you have any kind of back pain problems. Um, so yeah, I will. I hope everyone has had a really nice week. Uh, get out and enjoy the sun. And I will uh, see you next week. Okay, bye. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.